feel like in the US you sometimes say the word Palestine and you just feel this like slight ripple of like, ew, really? Like, oh, did someone, you know, like fart or something? Like, it's just, it's just so strange. And actually this book is about saying, look, let's just say the word Palestinian. Let's talk about the culture. Let's talk about the food. It's okay. But also let's acknowledge that it's a difficult situation. And I kind of just want, come and, come and feel safe with me and, and let's go on a journey. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, we have Yasmin Khan, a UK-based journalist and author of the new cookbook, Zaytun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen. Also on the show, we have Rebecca Pepler, author of the book Aperitif, Cocktail Hour the French Way. But Matt, what did you and Yasmin talk about? We had a great chat, Yasmin and I. This book, it's it's fantastic. We talked about the extensive travels and the extensive reporting she undertook um, while covering the Palestinian table. Um, the travels took her through Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. I've been seeing her book everywhere, and I haven't cooked out of it yet, but what is what are the recipes like? What's the cooking like? They're really sharp recipes. I really um, clued in on this one called Omos Zatar, which defines Zatar in such a simple and clear way. Um, I think it's probably the greatest big air quote Zatar recipe um, available. Uh, you can make Zatar at home, and she really defines it really well. She also went to my favorite restaurant in Haifa and wrote this really cool essay, such a colorful and voicey essay about this restaurant. I love this book. Please buy it, listener. Here's Matt talking to Yasmin. Yasmin Khan, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. Your book, I've I've spent hours with it, hours, and it's just beautiful writing. And I want to get into um, all the reporting you did, which is just tremendous. So, listener, I think um, the big takeaway from Zaytun is the reporting. There's been just so much of it. But I wanted to ask you first, you write about Palestinian food tasting alive. What exactly does that mean? It means that so much of the flavor palette of Palestinian cookery is filled with so much like zip and zing. You know, we're talking lemons and sumac and, you know, aromatic zatar, um, flavors that really pop on your mouth. You know, um, it's one of the things I remember so clearly from my first trip to that region about 10 years ago. Um, you know, I was, maybe it's because I grew up in the UK, but like our fresh produce there like sucks. You know, it gets no sun. Whereas, um, you know, uh, in that region, you pick up a tomato and you, you could like eat a tomato like you eat an apple. You know, it is it is sun kissed. It is sweet. It is juicy. Oh, and the oranges. Let's talk about just the oranges. Yeah. Um, the or I mean, just, you know, um, the oranges, the figs, um, you know, it, it you know, it, there's a reason why that whole strip is called the Fertile Crescent. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, the soil is very red. And I sometimes wonder if that means that there's just good stuff going into it. Yeah. If you travel in the region and go to one of the markets and just just grab a glass of orange juice, it'll, it's a it's a it's like it's like a weird combination of like McDonald's, like a, a orange drink and like like the sweetness is there, but then it has the balance of the acidity that it's yeah. like orange drink on steroids. Yeah. In a good in the best possible way. 
Um, I want to know the book. Obviously, you have to teeter between a cookbook and the, obviously the political, um, you know, moments that are happening there all the time. And we could talk for an hour about the politics, but I really do want to talk about the cooking. But tell me, um, really, you you make the choice of of recognizing Israeli voices, but there aren't Israeli uh, cooks in the book. Talk about that 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 process. Yeah, so this is a Palestinian cookbook, a book that celebrates Palestinian cuisine. Um, but in it, because um, there's you know no such country called Palestine, you know I travel through Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. And in a lot of my interviews, you know we would naturally end up talking about some of the issues that surround um, kind of how Israeli policies are impacting on on Palestinians. Um, but I just really wanted, you know, to, I guess, start off very clearly in the book to saying that this isn't actually about silencing anyone's experience, um, but just simply allowing a space for Palestinian voices to be heard. In, indeed. And um, bravo. Thank you for doing that, because I think it's eloquent, it's articulate, and that's very hard when you're talking about uh you know, the issues in the, that, the region, really. Yeah. I mean, the very fact that we keep saying the region, you know. I know, like, I'm being hedgy. It's, so, it's yeah. so hedgy. And I think, you know, this is a very U.S. Uh, situation, actually. In, in Europe, in the U.K., this isn't that controversial a, a, a topic, you know. Yeah. Whereas I feel like in the U.S., you sometimes say the word Palestine and you just feel this, like, slight ripple. It's of, like, ew, really? Like, oh, did someone, you know, like, fart or something? Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just so strange. And actually, this book is about saying, look, Let's just say the word Palestinian. Let's talk about the culture. Let's talk about the food. It's okay. But also let's acknowledge that it's a difficult situation. And I kind of just want, come and, come and feel safe with me and, and let's go on a journey. And I feel uh, your, uh, your the use of humor and being just so articulate is throughout threaded throughout the book. I, 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 read, I, read, I hear your voice now. And I, when I read it, I hear your voice. Um, I want to hear about the Palestinian table. Just really, what are some of the... Uh, the dishes and the staples that you go over, you know, falafel hummus, we we know that is part of the region, but there's much more obviously in this book. Yeah, it's so rich, um, you know, and the Palestinian table encompasses a real tapestry of dishes from the really kind of vegetable focused um, recipes of Palestinian communities in the Galilee, you know, stuff like uh, the tabbouleh, the fatouches, kind of braised okra, um, green beans simmered in a kind of tomato and garlic sauce. Um, and then you have kind of dishes from the West Bank, which is kind of influenced from like the Jordan Valley or the Bedouin culture, you know, more meat heavy, more breads. And then the cuisine of Gaza, which again is totally different. You know, this really kind of punchy um, list of flavors. You read about garlic Just being like part of the... Garlic and 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 green chilies and dill. Um, so it's just so exciting, I think, as as a food writer to be able to explore all of those. And of course, the ingredient that brought it all together, wherever I was, was zaytun, uh, which is the Arabic and Turkish and Farsi word for olive. Um, and olive oil and um, olive trees and and olives being on the, every table that you would go to, and um, for me, just was such a great representation of Palestinian Absolutely. food. Absolutely. 
and talk about the reporting. Um, like, what was your process? I know you write about spending time in the West Bank in in homes. You write about being in the galley in restaurants and and interviewing um, chefs. So you're 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 talking about home cooks, talking about restaurant culture. There's some agriculture, obviously covered. I mean, how long were you on the road reporting this? I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, um, I did it over two trips, um, which you know I think they're about a month each. And yeah, I was busy uh, on a lot of weight, but that was fine. <laughs> we kind of, uh, you know, went on a real... So I worked with a young Palestinian photographer, this woman called Raya. And we were just, yeah, we just had a lot of fun kind of like cruising around in her beat up car, like listening to, to kind of music and kind of, you know, starting off maybe with people she knew and then you'd get recommendations. So you'd be at someone's house and they'd be like, oh, well, you've got to go to that like baklava shop. And they'd be like, well, you know, my aunt makes some me you know frike soup and it just kind of uh it really flowed like that and that's how I like to work you know I, I will set up some interviews in places you know if you know that there's a particular producer that's well known or a particular kind of restaurant but I kind of like just go with the flow I think that leads for a more interesting travel narrative absolutely and I want to just call out uh Duzan in Haifa which uh when I read that I was like wow that re- I've been there I've, a family member of ours took took us there and wow what a cool place let's yeah. shout out Duzan a little bit oh, that's wanna... so cool that you went there too yeah. Yeah, it it's great. so beautiful inside, it really is. isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's like a home, as you write. Yeah. It absolutely feels like a Palestinian home. So to paint a picture um, for listeners, this is a restaurant in Haifa, um, which is a town and kind of by the coast in the north of Israel. And um, it's run by this super exuberant um, Palestinian guy called Fadi Najir. And he runs it with his aunt and his mom. And it celebrates Palestinian home cooking. But more than that, when you go in, the shop is full of kind of these old wooden antiques and furniture and books and it just feels like you've walked into another world and then you have the salads oh my like, god and then you have the salad <clears throat> then you eat the salads you're like this isn't just like um, um the, the mise-en-scene it's it's like the actual food is amazing it's really Matouche, good. i remember it was remarkable best it's i've ever had in my life really fantastic yeah so i um I, yeah i, I love like the, all kinds of stuff i love the kibbe which are these kind of kind of small american football shaped um kind of meatballs of uh, minced lamb wrapped in kind of bulgur wheat um and then they had these gorgeous like rolled up eggplant um with kind of beautiful like a white cheese and herbs and oh it was amazing yeah it was so a really great. great place um in the book there's plenty of recipes and it's, it's i can't wait to cook from it but one that really stuck out um is the almost za'atar because it's so interesting because za'atar uh, is obviously becoming more and more common in American cooking. But then there's always that disclaimer, what is za'atar? What is za'atar? It's agriculture. It's a, it's a herb, but it's also a, a spice blend. And then you kind of like really like clearly in like 100 words and in like five <laughs> ingredients said, actually, this is za'atar. Explain it, please. It's amazing that you did this. Yeah. So it's very simple to make a almost za'atar spice mix at home with um, oregano, marjoram, sesame seeds, sumac, and a bit of salt. You mix them all together, kind of equal amounts of every one, apart from the salt, obviously. You can buy the book to get the recipe. Um, and you then can put that in an air container for two weeks and then just use that on your salads with your breads, with your kind of roast vegetables. Listener, I mean, this is like the best 
way to, to actually present za'atar in the States. Finding some sumac, which is much easier than finding the za'atar herb. And then, of course, all the other ingredients is very, very commonly found in the States. You just got to find sumac, I, yeah. I feel. Um, I want to know a little bit about pomegranate because it's everywhere in this book. And pomegranate, as well as za'atar, has really become common in the American kitchen, not just the, the juice, but the actual seeds. How is pomegranate so common on the, in the Palestinian kitchen? Yeah, it's funny, you know, because I'm um, my mom's from uh, Iran, so we I like have a huge pomegranate connection, and it's really funny. The last few years, like pomegranates have become, I think they're starting to become almost a cliche of themselves in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's totally. like, oh, we're going to throw some pomegranate seeds on, <laughs> um, but you know, I feel quite passionately about the fruit and the ingredient because I I grew up with it, and it's yeah. and it's you know it is a very special fruit, and um, um. In many of, again, those countries of the region, all over actually, the wider Middle East, um, pomegranates have always had a lot of mythology around them. So they're known for like fertility or abundance. And, um, you know, in Iran, I always tell like the story of like they're the ancient temples in Iran of the Zoroastrian faith used to be lined with pomegranate trees because they were symbols of eternal life. Um, and pomegranates actually played a part in me choosing my photographer for this book because like I put a shout out on social media. You know, I need a photographer. You know, anybody know anyone? And I end up speaking to Raya. And in in the in our in our Skype call, she was just like, "Hell, hey, yeah, oh, I'm in a bit of pain. I got a new um, tattoo," and she pulled up her trousers to show this stencil of half a pomegranate uh, entwined <laughs> on her calf and I was like done you're my people that's the one for me I love it you write about uh, you went to Bethlehem which is in the West Bank and you write about um, you know Bethlehem we know in Christianity has a lot of significance but you're you're not there for that you're there for finding the best hummus I know I love this chapter it's such a great it's just so well written talk about that journey yeah, so uh, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, hummus was such a staple in, in, you know, like it's something that everyone always has in the fridge. And like I'd been used to having like dry mealy falafels for like years, you know, like, you know, but um, when I, it wasn't until I went there that I was like, oh, this is what good hummus and this is what good falafel is really all about. And I went to this cafe called Aftims, which uh, I think like President Obama visited when he went there. It's like a super, you know, it's like super casual, like just a little hole in the wall place. Um, but they serve these incredible like crisp balls of, of, of falafel. And then the hummus, which is just like... like so like as smooth as silk and drenched in tahini and just so light like it's been whipped and yeah the the airiness <gasps> of the 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 hummus yeah. there is different than yeah. anywhere i've ever had when you crack open the falafel is it green so tell me what color is it because that's a big part of the falafel conversation yeah it is it isn't as green as say egyptian falafel right. which is very green and i think they make them with broad beans there as well which is one of the reasons um so it is like slightly flecked with green so it's like um you know because um a lot of people don't know this but to make the best falafel you have to actually not cook the chickpeas and you you just soak them overnight and then you whip them with kind of fresh herbs um and you know it's just 
I I don't know why falafel is. I mean, it feels like like over here, it's just so easy to get a bad falafel. And yet, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in the book, it's one of my favorite recipes. That I always tell people falafel, like really tasty falafel, is super simple to make at home. As long as you soak the the, the beans overnight, you can get that ready in twenty minutes, and like you won't go back. I love that. I'm gonna definitely make that soon. Let's talk about finding Palestinian food outside of the region in the Middle East. I want to know you live in London. Um, and you visit the States and you have a sister living in uh, New York, where are you eating great Palestinian food around the world? Yeah. I mean, give us some some tips. Yeah, sure. Well, here in New York, you've got Tannerine over in Bay Ridge, which is just great. I mean, that's just like classic Palestinian home cooking, um, a really homely place. Um, over in California, in the Bay Area, I absolutely love what Reem Asil is doing um, with her kind of her cafes and her restaurants, really kind of modern takes on kind of food from the region. Um, but I think, you know, both in the UK and here, compared to other the Middle Eastern uh, food cultures. We've not really seen um, Palestinian, you know, food celebrated in the way I think perhaps it deserves to be should. And I think there's a lot of a lot of political reasons for that um, about people not feeling comfortable um, um, talking it's about fart their heritage. Equation that you say it's like someone yeah. farted. Yeah. yeah, and it's really common to find. Uh, in fact, in Near where my sister lives in Park Slope, there was a place called like a Mediterranean Grill. And when I went in there, I found out that they were Palestinian and they do great kanafi. And, uh, you know, that's a choice that people choose not to talk yeah. about their heritage. And that's quite sad. But um, you'd be surprised if you keep your eye out. Next time you see something that looks Mediterranean Grill, you never know. It might be Palestinian. It probably is. It's We encounter that all the time in New York. What's mm-hmm. the name of the place in Park Slope? Do you remember the name? Yeah, it's, it's called Tahini. Oh, it's called Tahini. The Kanafe is amazing. It's like the best one I've had outside of like That's that region. Amazing. I've yeah. never been there. I live like one subway stop from there. So yeah. um, and I have to ask you, you live in London, so like what's outside of Palestinian food in general, what's happening in London these days? Is it a, an exciting restaurant city? New York, uh, we've discussed on the podcast, often is in a incredible slump. Uh, because of real estate pinches and just it's difficult to survive here. But how's London these days? Yeah, I mean, London's kick ass at the moment. I have to say, you know, I'm not just saying it because I'm a Londoner, but, you know, having, you know, heard all these reputations of New York and then coming here over the last few months, few years, sorry, I've always been like, oh, wow, I think Europe is kind of catching up. And, um, you know, what I'm absolutely loving about uh that the London food scene at the moment is that because London's such an international city, you just are getting incredible kind of local, regional dish, you know, restaurants that are, that are flourishing. Whether it's kind of you know Northern Thai food or Sri Lankan food or you know you know uh, I don't know Russian food. I just like it's so diverse. Um, honestly, I really just think that you know, and the food in London is very vegetable forward. Like that is such a huge focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I really encourage people to just you know if. If you want a foodie holiday, Paris, nah, you know, if you want something diverse, come people to London. People are cooler in London, too. Just shout out to people <laughs> in London. But at, let me ask you about vegetables in London because it's mm-hmm. a question we have on the East Coast. It's very challenging to find great produce, you know, between December and April. Uh, how are you finding produce? Is it much easier because you're so close to the Mediterranean region or is it also challenging in this time of year? Yeah, it's also challenging, but I think it's about realizing there's lots of great stuff that you can do with the produce you have. So, um, again, one of my favorite recipes of the book is one I made yesterday, which is this roast cauliflower soup, which is, you know, spiced with turmeric and allspice and cumin and super warming and homely. And, you know, you can make it with 
everything that you grow here. I love it. Last question. I wanted to find out, we ask all of our guests, what is your dream book project? No budget concerns, no time concerns. I mean, it's a business and you have to make choices, but really, let's just put the dream project out there. And I did not prep you for this. So you didn't. You know, I listened to the podcast, so I know this and I knew okay. I should have prepared something. <laughs> um... Oh, man, you know what? I feel like I'm working on my dream projects right now. I feel so lucky. What can you say about it? Um, My next book, which I can't talk about, but it's out in a couple of years. It's following on the same theme as this, kind of travel, exploring a region and telling stories of people who are misrepresented in the press. I don't know. I feel very privileged to be a writer early in my career that's able to do the work that they want to do. And we really appreciate it as readers. So thank you for joining the Taste Podcast, Yasmin. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to be here. Here's Anna talking to Rebecca Pepler. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Your book is Aperitif, and it's all about the French cocktail hour tradition. What is an aperitif? Uh, that's a threefold question. Um, it's sadly not the easiest of things to answer. But, a book-length um, question, yeah, if you it's, will. Yeah, what is it? 244 pages of mm-hmm. uh, answers. So aperitif is a couple different things. It's a, it's a drink, so that's the easiest answer, and it's usually the answer I give when I'm, I'm not doing a podcast recording. Um, so it's actually the bottle itself. So like different bottles like Suze, Lillet, uh, beer, like all of these different like classic French aperitifs are all actually an aperitif themselves. And then the drink you make with the aperitif bottle is also an aperitif. And then the time of day that you take it is the hour of the aperitif or apéro in colloquial form. Um, and so it's a it's a long-winded answer to the fact that it's a drink and it's a time of day that you drink it. And the time of the day is kind of like right before dinner, right? Yeah. The sun is setting over the sun. You're sitting outside at a little <laughs> cafe. Absolutely. So um, the subtitle of the book is Cocktail Hour the French Way, and it is – um, one of the working subtitles for a while was happy hour, and I think that it's a really nice um, kind of equivalent cocktail hour happy hour because it is in that same time zone where it's like after work, before the start of the evening or dinner or whatnot, whatever you're doing. It's um, The one interesting thing is that in America, we think of happy hour as like end the work day, like this is like party time. Mm-hmm. And in France, it's actually the start of the evening rather than the end of the work day. It's like the beginning of something rather than celebrating the end. Okay. So what is, so you actually live in France now and lived in France while you were working on the book. Yeah. What are some of the major differences between drinking culture in say like New York and Paris cuz both have really vibrant drinking cultures. But how different are they and were there any things that you really missed about New York drinking? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to be splitting time while I was writing the book between Paris and New York. So I was getting both, um, which was wonderful, Mm -hmm. um, if exhausting. Um, But I think the main difference is the ease of which French people drink. Like this this aperitif hour or just like opening a bottle of wine, it's, um, it's simply part of the day rather than an activity that's like gone out to be done. And so it can be, you know, the book talks about taking aperitif at home, but 
at home kind of expands. It's like basically anything that's not a bar restaurant where you're paying for it Mm -hmm. Um, because the French do this lovely thing of taking it on the road and like out to the Seine like you you suggested Um, or just to a park. And here in New York, um, well, it's not as legal for us to be drinking outdoors as it is in France. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that they just take a much kind of more effortless uh, way of thinking about drinking in France. How do you actually take a cocktail or an aperitif on the road? Like, what's a really good portable aperitif if you want to go camp out by a lake or by a river? Yes. Well, a bottle of wine is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it's very French. Um, but if we're talking about um, actual aperitif bottles, I think that Lillet is wonderful. Um, so it's a fortified wine, and uh, it also has quinine in it, so it's a bittering agent. All you really need is ice and a lemon twist. And if you want to add um, some tonic or some sparkling water, you can. But really, you can just, like, as long as you can get the bottle cold, you're great. But that's kind of the lovely thing about aperitif bottles. It's like you can pretty much drink all of them on the rocks with a twist and call it a portable cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you add sparkling water to it, then it's like a real cocktail, right? Um, so I would say that, yeah, Lillet, wine, um, any one of these bottles, as long as you can also bring ice with you, would be great. Do French people actually make cocktails at home a lot? How common is that? How common is, like, entertaining for a cocktail hour? Uh, So I would say, I'm going to, like, skirt your question slightly. The French drink at home a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, that's very normal. I think cocktail making is something that's a little more new um, to a French household uh, within the last, you know, 30 years or so, I would say that's shifted quite a bit. But even the cocktails that are being made are quite simple. Like it's a aperitif is all about low alcohol by volume. So you're not drinking a ton to get drunk. You're drinking to open your palate and open your evening. And so any cocktails that are going to be made are usually quite simple and um, low alcohol in spirit. How hard was it to kind of transition from living and shopping and cooking and hosting in New York to doing that in Paris? Because that's like a lot of people's fantasy, getting to kind of throw parties in Paris. Were there any things that you missed or like things that were harder to do in Paris than they were in New York? Yeah. So there's like this fantasy that's very true about Paris and France in general is that you there are supermarkets that you can go to. But really, when you're doing your shopping the way that we all kind of fantasize about doing it and the way that I do it there is you go to your butcher, you go to your vegetable guy, you go like all of these shops are different. Um, You don't go to one place and get everything. Or if you do, like that's a rarity rather than the um, norm. So in that context, that's quite a bit more different uh, or difficult. Um, When I was living in New York, I was also working as a food stylist. And so uh, I did a lot of shopping and running around and getting stuff, but I also utilized delivery services. Mm-hmm. And um, that doesn't exist in France. And I live on a fifth floor walk up in Mamath. So it's like it's a lot of stairs to be climbing with a lot of bags from a lot of different places that I've all walked to. Shopping is like so, its own event. It is. Like a day long thing. It is. And I'm I'm lucky that uh, it's part of my job so I can kind of justify it. But it's a, it's definitely a a shift and can be quite wonderful and um, fantastical, but also can be a drag sometimes when you need to get other stuff done and you have to run all over the place anyway. 
Totally. Yeah, I think like a lot of people in New York would love to have the option to kind of like go to each place individually to have your meat guy, your bread person. And you can do that here. I mean, there's, yeah. it's, it's actually quite possible. Um, but it takes a lot of time. And I think the nice thing about New York and Paris is they're both they're both cities and we think of them as big cities, but they're actually quite small and you get in your neighborhood and you don't have to leave and everything is kind of um, central for you once you figure out where you're going. So I think you can create that European experience of like shopping in all your different places and getting to know all of your people. And I think Mm -hmm. once you cultivate these relationships, it actually becomes easier because they know what you want and you know what you want and you don't have to take a ton of time in order to have that like really interpersonal reaction or relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of nice to be able to support smaller neighborhood businesses rather than big grocery chains. Yeah. Yeah. What else is changing right now in French drinking culture? You mentioned people making like a few more cocktails at home Mm -hmm. than they used to. But how else has it changed in the last 30 or 40 years? Um, hard spirits, uh, which aren't included in, in my book, in Aperitif, um, have started to come into the drinking culture in a way. Like, you know, there's always been cognac and pomade and all of these, like, you know, Calvados and these uh, spirits that are, are quite high alcohol by volume um, and have been traditionally drunk. But I think that there's, you know, whiskey is coming in and gin. And um, I have a, a very French friend and his favorite cocktail is gin tonic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there is a shift towards integrating some of these more American ideas of what a cocktail is within French culture, but they're also doing it in a way that still feels very true to their roots. And I think that's kind of what I tried to do in the book is um, showcase this historic tie that they have, the French have, to classic aperitif spirits, but using them in modern ways. And I think that it mirrors it in their drinking culture right now. You must have tried so many French spirits over the course of working on this book. Were there any that you really wanted to love but just, like, could not wrap your taste buds around? Um, yes. There's def- there's a there's something called Genepi, which is, a, which is just a very strong um, aperitif that actually I didn't include in the book because it is quite niche and I wanted to – the aperitifs included in the book – for the most part, are um, readily available here in the States. Um, but it's it's something that um, some of my friend's parents love, and I had to try many times in the uh, uh, pursuit of politeness. Um, but I still haven't gotten on board. I'm still, I'm still giving it a, you know, a solid try. But one that I did start liking that I didn't like prior to um, researching the book was Pastis, which... Um, you know, gets a bad rap because everyone just is like, oh, I don't like anise. I don't like licorice. And then you just don't drink it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I got to, the beauty of getting to research a book like this is you actually get to visit the people that are producing these um, spirits. And so I got to go to a couple really wonderful distilleries that are doing really interesting, um, local, very nuanced um, pastis bottles, um, rather than like a big, like, huge brand doing something where it's just like the um, the like flavors that aren't just anise don't always come through yeah. and that was a surprise for me to like actually start start liking pastis and crave it now so pastis is a style rather than like a kind of uh, 
Exactly. Brands. Exactly. So like that's the the funny thing about aperitifs. Like Suze is a brand, right? Beer is a brand. Lillet is a brand. Pastis is not a brand. Okay. Um, what does it taste are, like? It tastes yeah. a little anisey. It tastes a little anisey. So it's the it's the drink that when you when you see anyone drinking in the south of France, you're like, oh, they're drinking pastis. It's a cloudy glass of what looks like water, but it's actually alcohol, and it's what you think like older gentlemen are drinking when they play petanque and like they mm-hmm. actually are um but it's a it's an anise forward spirit um but it's laced with all these different other types of herbs and botanicals and it came out of the um ban on absinthe so it's basically absinthe without the wormwood um so it was still legal to be able to drink um super strong you always dilute it some people add ice some people add a lot of ice and it's called a piscine which is a swimming pool um, and it does the thing where it turns kind of milky. Once yeah, ice. yeah, yeah. It's really cool. It's a it's a magical drink. It uh, it turns cloudy, and it has um it's a compound compound called anethole, and it does all of these really cool scientific things that I did a bunch of research for the book, and then like left them out of it because mm-hmm. it's super interesting, but doesn't quite fit into uh to the amount of words that I had here. Um, but it's a it's a great drink, and it's uh, something to seek out and try again if you hadn't. I liked it the first time. Do you put it in cocktails too? There's a couple cocktails with it. There's one called the Paroquet, which is um, the parrot, uh, and it's with creme de menthe and pastis and water and a lime. Uh, lime is my modern ad. If you were doing, it's a very fr- uh, classic French cocktail. If you were doing it in the classic way, you would not add that, um, and you would be careful with your ice ad because people feel very strongly one way or another on that. Um, and there's a couple other ones. I mean. I know that there's mixologists and bartenders that are probably adding it to very, like, interesting complex drinks. Um, But I think it stands on its own much better um, or with just a one or two part ad. You talk a little in the book about St. Germain, which is it came onto the scene in 2007. Yeah. So it's like a much newer liquor, but it has become so classic in bartending. Mm -hmm. Uh, were there other kind of like new up and coming makers or spirits that you got really into? Yeah. So you're right. I got to drink a lot when I was researching this book. Um, and I actually include in the back like uh, brands that I love and like different like there's a bunch of vermouth uh, makers that are doing really cool things. And a lot of them are actually American. Um, and so when I wasn't able to insert those particular um, labels in the book itself. I still wanted to give kind of name to them somewhere. Actually, there's a lot of American makers that are doing cool things. There's also a um, company called Full Envie, which is based out like outside of Bordeaux in France. Um, and they're making a like kind of traditional style aperitif in a modern way. And so it has a little bit of like Sue's undertone. Sue's is that bright yellow aperitif that you see like now on like most bar menus as a white Negroni Um, and it's super bitter and like people think they don't like it and they try it in something else and they realize how wonderful it is. Um, But they're doing it in like just a little like um, softer way Uh, and then they're also making their own tonic uh, called Archambault and uh, it's a, you know, it's a husband and wife team. They're really interesting and they're doing, they're kind of like doing exactly what I try to do with the book, talk about the tradition of aperitif, but then make it in a in a modern way. And they're not importing to the U.S. yet, but I highly recommend getting a bottle and smuggling it back in your dirty laundry cool. on your way home. That sounds awesome. Yeah. What else? So you mentioned vermouth and you mentioned Lillet as uh, 
as spirits that are really awesome to just kind of drink on their own mm-hmm. on ice. Mm-hmm. What are the other underrated spirits that people associate with cocktails that you are really into just drinking on their own or with a twist? Yeah. Um, so really pretty much any aperitif can be drunk alone because it was created in order to be drunk alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of fun. Like this, the the add-on of being able to create a cocktail with it is fun, but it's not entirely necessary in order to enjoy the like really complexity of each of these bottles. Um, I think Sherry is starting to have a, like a comeback in cocktails, which makes me really happy. Uh, but then I think people forget to drink it on its own. And it's mm-hmm. one of my favorite aperitifs, which I know I'm like crossing over to another country when I say that. Um, yeah, Sherry but, has kind of like an old person reputation in the U.S. at least. Yeah, it's Port and Sherry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Port is still still coming into its own. But Sherry has really, um, at least in Europe, it's being drunk a lot as an aperitif and by itself and not always incorporated in cocktails. And I do have a few cocktails that included in the book, and I think they're crazy interesting. But I think what's also really cool about buying a bottle and making a cocktail from a book is also getting to drink the bottle by itself and explore something new. And so um, if you're, you know, buying something in order to make a cocktail, buy something that you would like to drink alone and then try it by itself and try it in a cocktail and then try it, try to make something yourself as well. And I think that's the that's the way to discover what you like and like what's actually interesting and what's good versus what you're just using as a mix in for a cocktail. What's a good kind of like low entry point, easy spirit to buy for friends? Like if you're buying a housewarming gift, mm. what's something that you kind of know everyone will like that's like easy to love and easy to use? Um, my favorite kind of housewarming gift is a bottle of Lillet, Um, mainly because it's it's delicious. Uh, I use it a lot in the book, but it also comes in three types. So you can get white, red, and rosé. And so depending on what you know about your host, you can kind of like, you know, skew in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you want to go crazy and get them some tonic to go with it or some sparkling water and some citrus, like you can kind of just like maybe even a book called Aperitif Cocktail or the French (laughs) Way and like mark the like – page that they could make the recipe from. It's a uh, it's easy, it's not crazy expensive, it lasts a while. Um I think what's interesting about any fortified wine, which um Lillet is, is that, you know, you can bring a bottle of wine to a dinner party and your host can open it and if there's any left over they can save it for a couple days. But if you bring a fortified wine, your host can open it and keep it for a couple months. Um and there's there's storage directions in the book, but basically refrigerate it and it lasts even longer. Um, and so that's kind of fun too. It's kind of like bringing flowers to a dinner party and like the host has to like find a vase for them and like they might die and like all this stuff. And like with a bottle, you like take away a little bit of the, or a bottle of aperitif fortified wine, you take away a little bit of the stress of having to do something immediately with it. Yeah. It can just be like a nice thing for them to enjoy in the weeks after. Absolutely. So you, in addition to writing, you're also a food stylist. Mm -hmm. How was working on the styling for this book? I know cocktails are kind of hard to shoot because a lot of them look kind of like liquid in a glass. But what was that like? Did you actually pick the glassware? Yeah. So uh, I had a very 
I mean, heavy hand, I think, is a, is a light way to say it um, in the imagery in the book. So I worked really closely. The photographer is Joanne Pye, and she's wonderful. Um, we worked really closely together to craft images that showed the nature of what taking a parity feels like in France while being cognizant of the fact that, yes, we are shooting cocktails, but, like, we're not shooting cocktails in a bar. And, like, we're shooting them on the street. We're shooting them by the river. We're shooting them in my apartment. We're shooting them on balconies. We're shooting them on cafe tables. Like, we kind of just went all over Paris in order to do it and kind of take away the the look that cocktail books can sometimes get that's kind of a little monotonous and uh, just, like, the same thing in a different glass in the same space. Right. Against, like, a blank exactly. background. Exactly. And, like, there's a space for that. But um, but the book, I really wanted to create an experience of what it's like to take um, aperitif in Paris and also at home. Uh, glassware is, I did all the sourcing and purchasing and propping for that as well. I still drink out of them, which is super fun. And How uh, full is your Paris apartment of just like <laughs> vintage glass? It's a, it's a lot. I gave, I gave away quite a bit to my assistants and my photographer um, at the end of the shoot because no one needs a ton of little baby shot glasses. But like, I still have quite a few. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Rebecca. I'm so excited to make some cocktails. Yes. Do you know which one you're going to make? I was eyeing a grapefruity cocktail that has some tonic and some sherry, I think. Oh, yeah. The sherry cobbler. Yes. Yeah. It looks so citrusy Mm -hmm. and refreshing. Yep. Thank you. Enjoy. Thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.